Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Poem Peeps. As a reminder, make sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review us if you enjoy listening. You can check us out um, and all of our content at poempeeps.com and follow us on Twitter at poempeeps for ongoing updates. Barf, I'm so excited to be back for another episode. Yeah, Monty, me too. Uh, obviously, always looking forward to this. Best part of my week right now. Uh, and today, we're going to be talking again about one of my favorite topics, pulmonary hypertension. So for a reminder, uh, we did an episode a while back focusing on the specifics of right heart caths in relation to a case of a patient who had a shunt. And we talked about how right heart caths are done, what we measure, and some intricacies of that procedure. Today, we're going to be having a discussion about a consult for suspicion of pulmonary hypertension. I think this comes up a lot in the outpatient clinic. It also comes up a lot in the hospital. Uh, and we'll be touching on diagnosis, the diagnostic groupings, and implications of relatively recent changes in the definitions of pH. I'm very excited, so let's dive in. Our first guest today is Erica Berman-Rosenzweig, EBR, as I call it. Erica is a professor of pediatrics and the director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Center and CTEP program at Columbia University Medical Center, New York Presbyterian Hospital. She's an active member of the Pulmonary Hypertension Association, was the editor-in-chief of Advances in Pulmonary Hypertension, and is on the scientific board of the World Symposium on PH. She's a true leader in the field, and it is great to have her on today. Welcome, Erica. Thank you, Dave, for the introduction, and um, it's just a pleasure to be here. And we know each other quite well from your training at Columbia, but I cannot take any credit for this uh, home peeps podcast <laughs> because uh, this is your own doing and, and it's, it's wonderful. So thanks for inviting me here today. Uh, you can take credit for whatever you want. <laughs> yes, we're so excited to have you on today, Erica. Um, and you are being joined by Katherine Simpson. Catherine is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital, and is one of the faculty members in our pulmonary hypertension group. Her clinical and research areas of expertise are in pulmonary vascular disease and right heart function. Her research is focused on novel biomarker discovery, as well as metabolomics in pulmonary vascular disease. And not only because she's my office mate, but Catherine is a true rising star in pulmonary hypertension, and so excited to have you on the show today, Catherine. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Last and certainly not least, we have Cyrus Goldani. Cyrus is an instructor in medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. He's also the director of the pulmonary hypertension program at BIDMC and is actively involved in clinical care and clinical research in a variety of pulmonary vascular disease domains. Welcome to the show, Cyrus. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Looking forward to it. And as always, this podcast is not meant for medical advice, and the opinions are our own and do not reflect our employers. Any cases referenced today are HIPAA compliant with some details that may have been changed to protect the identity of our patient. Great. So let's dive in. So I think, again, this is a top consult question that happens a lot, both on the inpatient side and also a common referral to pulmonary clinic and to pulmonary hypertension clinic. So for this case, we'll start with a patient uh, from clinic referral. So we have Miss Pamela Harris, Miss PH, who is a 47-year-old woman with a past medical history of migraines, obesity, status post a gastric sleeve, her BMI is now 33, and a history of remote DVT in her 20s while on oral contraceptives. Status post six months of AC, no longer on anticoagulation, who was referred to a pulmonary hypertension clinic for evaluation of dyspnea on exertion. She's actually had dyspnea for some time, and previously it had been attributed to her weight, and based on this, she pursued a gastric sleeve and has lost 55 pounds, but she continues to have shortness of breath. She has no cough and does not get dyspnea at rest, but notes that after one flight of stairs or two to three blocks on flat ground, she has shortness of breath worse than she thinks is normal. She saw her primary care. She had basic labs, basic spirometry, and an echocardiogram, and he did not note anything significant on her physical exam. On the lab, she had no anemia, normal renal and liver function, her bicarb was 25, but there was no blood gas. Spirometry showed an FVC of 82% predicted, an FEV1 of 83% predicted, and an FEV1 over FVC of 99% predicted. The echocardiogram had normal left ventricular function, mild LVH, normal RV size and function qualitatively, but there was mild TR, and the tricuspid peak regurgitant velocity was 3.4 meters per second with an estimated PASP plus RA pressure of 46 millimeters of mercury. 
So Catherine, I, I feel like I've had these similar consults all the time, both inpatient and outpatient. Uh, sometimes on the inpatient side, because someone's hypoxemic and they have this other echo, uh, elevated PASP on an echo, and they want to know if the pH is playing a role. So to start, you know, what history questions do you have beyond what I gave you for a patient who comes to your clinic like this? Sure. So I, I typically have two main goals with my history taking for a patient like this. So my questions are generally focused on First, understanding the patient's constellation of symptoms and the extent of their functional limitation uh, with the goal of ultimately assigning a, a WHO functional class by the end of the encounter. My second goal is to try to understand any potential causes and contributors to pH that might be present. So to start, I ask about things like, how do you feel when you walk on flat ground? How do you feel when you climb the stairs? Things that you mentioned. How do you feel when you're doing ordinary chores around the house, for example? For patients that are younger or maybe a little less limited, like potentially this lady, I tend to ask if they do any regular exercise, and if so, do they feel like they've lost ground with what they've been able to do during exercise lately? And then I try to make sure I understand how any of their perceived limitations have evolved, so what that, that time course has been like. Um, and I think this case actually illustrates the value of that nicely, right? You get a sense here that this patient's limitations are probably not just related to her obesity. Um, I make sure to ask about other important symptoms that may point me to other things I need to address with the patient. For example, chest pain, which may prompt an ischemic evaluation, or palpitations, which might prompt a polter to understand if they have atrial arrhythmia or extremity edema. Um, and I always ask about presyncope or frank syncope as sort of red flag symptoms. Um, then my second goal with history taking is to try to understand potential causes and contributors to pH and the likelihood that certain conditions might be present that warrant further workup. So for this patient in particular, I'd Make sure to ask more about her clot history, ask if clots run in her family, ask if she experienced any recurrent pregnancy loss in her childbearing years. Um, in light of her obesity, I'd ask about OSA symptoms, and I'd ask about any history of taking medications for weight loss. Um, I think these questions are particularly important for this patient, but I actually ask all my patients these questions in clinic. I also ask everyone that comes to my clinic about signs or symptoms of autoimmune disease. Um, we see a fair amount of connective tissue disease at Hopkins, so this comes up, things like Raynaud's phenomenon, skin changes. Um, and I make sure I've got a good thorough social history for everyone, understand their exposures, who they are, good family history. So I ask everyone if they have any family history of heritable lung diseases, or autoimmunity, clotting disorders. Um, and then there are some lines of questioning that I just tend to tailor to the patient and dive more or less deeply into depending on who's sitting in front of me. So I ask questions meant to elicit risk factors for ILDs or other lung diseases if I'm concerned about spirometry or chest imaging, um, you know, which for this patient, I think I'd probably chalk her spirometry. Maybe she's got some borderline restriction up to obesity unless something on her imaging suggests otherwise. Um, questions about birth history, childhood Ill illnesses or surgeries in certain patients. Um, sometimes I ask about signs or symptoms of liver disease or get a detailed travel history. Um, yeah, the two main goals for me with my history taking are understanding symptoms and functional status and understanding potential causes and contributors to pH. Thanks so much for going over that, Catherine. I think that was really helpful. And I feel like I'm going to borrow your, your history template for, for my own clinic going forward. You're welcome to um, it. <laughs> in, in addition to history and how, and how important it is, Erica, I wanted to ask you, what on physical exam are you looking for in patients such as this when you see in clinic? Well, I think, again, you can uh, look for sort of three main, main issues that affect the physical exam. One is trying to find signs that confirm whether there is in fact pulmonary hypertension. Secondly, are there any signs of right heart failure? And then thirdly, maybe to, uh, to uh, Catherine's point, are signs of other secondary causes of pulmonary hypertension. So I like to think of those three elements in the physical exam as well. You know, kind of going from head to toe, we look for um, jugular venous distension. On the cardiac exam, we're going to look for this loud second heart sound or P2, which is accentuated with the you know, elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. We are looking for uh, abnormal murmurs. So for tricuspid regurgitation in this case, although it was mild, perhaps you might hear a um, you know, pan-systolic murmur at the right sternal border of varying degrees. You can also hear a high-pitched diastolic murmur if there's severe pulmonary insufficiency. It's a very characteristic murmur. In advanced cases, you could even have an RV heave if you palpate the chest, and you can also have an S4 gallop as well. So you're listening for these, um, these signs as well as other cardiac pathology. So is there a murmur for mitral regurgitation that might head you down another pathway, for example? 
Um, but you're also looking again for signs of heart failure. You're listening to the lungs. Is there, are there rolls? Are, are the lungs clear? Is there peripheral edema, hepatosplenomegaly, asymmetric edema for someone who's had uh, DVT history and so forth? Um, those are, you know, kind of classic signs for a more advanced patient and they're not going to be that subtle typically. And then finally, Again, to some of Catherine's points, looking at uh, secondary causes of pH, are there any skin, you know, rashes, telangiectasias, things that go along with liver disease and the like, um, arthritis, uh, other signs that you might see on physical exam. And I'll finally mention one thing because I've started to look for it. It's just a little bit of a pearl, mostly in kids, but seen in some adults, uh, which is associated with a TBX4 mutation. You can get... Uh, shallow kneecaps, believe it or not, uh, hypoplasia of the kneecaps and a large big toe separated to, uh, first toe from the second toe. So I've recently started looking at my patient's toes and knees. Thank you so much. That's, that's really an interesting pearl. And I'm looking forward to um, other pearls from you today, um, Erica, um, that I think many of us will take away. And I did want to ha um, talk a little bit more, though. I know you mentioned some of the findings that we can get, see um, related to pulmonary hypertension, such as a pronounced P2 or the right ventricular heave. But when in the course of pulmonary hypertension disease, do you generally expect that these classic findings will be present? Honestly, you can, you know, you can hear a loud P2 pretty, pretty early on. The heave is, is usually later, uh, later in the course and obviously a gallop when there's, when there's heart failure. But um, there's no clear cutoff, frankly, and I've, I've seen all sorts of, of cardiac exams. But typically, again, the resistance has to be elevated and it's due to, you know, rapid early closure of that pulmonic valve. So uh, once again... I encourage people to listen to the patient because these days we often uh, are less focused on our stethoscopes. Um, it could be one of the earliest findings, frankly, uh, physical findings allowed P2 in your exam. Uh, so, uh, but, you, but you've got to be really get used to listening for it. Yeah, I've often dreamed of doing this study where after someone has an echo or a right heart cath, seeing like when loud P2 is added to their notes. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, right, I hear a loud P2 now as it goes. Uh, those are great, great pearls. So, you know, the next thing I want to dive into here is the echocardiogram. You know, I think there are a lot of other diagnostics we talk about, but the majority of patients that I think get referred for pulmonary hypertension consideration, vast majority, are because they have a finding on echo that thinks that needs a further workup. So I think talking at the echo really deserves uh, extra attention in this. So Cyrus, can you tell us how you approach an echo in a patient like this who's gotten referred to you for some findings that are concerning for pH? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. This is sort of because it's the principal screening tool, the one that you oftentimes have to you know address first and foremost when you get a consult question. Mortality in pulmonary hypertension is driven by right ventricular failure. And that's the first place I look on um, a report in the actual echo images themselves is how well is that right ventricle doing? And in the classic report, you're going to have both, let's say, qualitative um, judgments and then also more quantitative judgments. So that can be sort of mild, moderate, or severe dysfunction or normal function for that matter. And then um, some quantitative markers such as TAPSI, uh, right ventricular fractional area change, or RV strain. And um, once I get a good sense of whether or not there's RV dysfunction or not, I sort of decide to make that next move, um, which is taking a look at right ventricular size. Um, and I put that in the context of that RV function. So as a classic example, you might see a patient that has a enlarged right ventricle on echo, but um, normal function. And that's sort of a classic picture of a right ventricle that is you know, either volume or flow loaded. Let's say, for example, somebody's forwardly hypervolemic um, after resuscitation for sepsis, or you've got a patient with end-stage renal disease and they've got a large, you know, robust fistula that's dumping a lot of extra blood into the right ventricle, or for that matter, a anomalous pulmonary vein that's been, you know, undiscovered up to that point. That's very different from a patient that's got an enlarged RV that is um, dysfunctional. And you would worry about those two patients in different ways. After I've taken a look at those two parameters, that's when I sort of move towards that um, estimated PASP value, which is really what the consult question oftentimes centers around. 
And the way that I work with that is I sort of think in terms of, you know, that PVR equation. Um, and so, you know, pulmonary vascular resistance equals the difference between your mean pulmonary artery pressure and your wedge pressure and um, divided by your cardiac output. And if you rearrange that equation in your head, what you'll find is that your pulmonary artery pressure is related to your PVR, your cardiac output, and your wedge pressure. And those are the three determinants that can really affect your PA pressures. And for our purposes, um, the mean PA pressure, which you get on the cath, is very much linked to the systolic pressure that you're estimating on the echo. Uh, so if you allow me that, what I do is I sort of just think in terms of those three factors, PVR output and filling pressures, and then see if there are any other clues in that echocardiogram that would suggest whether any of those are abnormal, which is, you know, principally going to be um, signs of volume overload and left-sided diastolic dysfunction. It's harder to make a good, confident judgment about what somebody's cardiac output or PBR is based on an echocardiogram, but you can sort of develop a framework by thinking about those three variables. You know, you take a look at some LV findings that could clue you in into sort of diastolic dysfunction or, you know, maybe a robust cardiac output. And then I sort of lump all those things together. And uh, that's when I sort of come away with a, a takeaway for an echocardiogram. And, you know, the echo example that you guys provided here is a pretty classic case of what you would get as a initial outpatient consult for further evaluation. That is great. I, I really like that having that system. One, because it takes more things into account than I think we normally talk about. And two, it's referencing the same hemodynamics that we heard about from Dr. Matai and Dr. Sao in, in our right heart cath episode. And so a follow-up question for you is, you talked about a couple of the measurements that we take on right heart cath and how the PASP is conceptually very much linked to the PA mean PA pressure that we're going to get on right heart cath. But how well do those findings actually correlate when you have an echo and try to compare it to a right heart cath numbers? You know, for, for clinical purposes, they correlate good enough. Um, now, you can imagine that this is a question that's been looked at pretty closely. And as far as I can tell, like in the 1980s, that's when the first studies that looked at correlation between echocardiograms and invasive right heart catheterizations were, you know, published. Over time, as echocardiographic technology has improved, I think we've found a way to sort of refine this data even more. When you look at studies that compare simultaneous or near simultaneous right heart catheterization echocardiogram findings, overall, all comers, there is close to 50% of cases you'll have a discrepancy of, you know, 10 millimeters mercury or more in your values. And a fair amount of that is driven by the estimate of the right atrial pressure being off a little bit. Now, when you adjust for the quality of the echocardiogram signal and you sort of just say, okay, these are the highest quality Doppler envelopes on echocardiogram, you, you'll improve that fraction a little bit. But there's still going to be a fair amount of scatter between the estimated measurement and the direct measurement. There's a reason one's a screening test and the other's a gold standard. But for routine clinical practice, I find that the echocardiogram is a generally reasonable, if not almost reliable tool for the purpose of screening. Yeah, that's great. And I feel like so many things, you know, medicine, there's a rule, but then there's also, you know, who's doing the study, how good of a study, who's interpreting it, which is, I feel like probably why all of us get so used to talking to the people doing the echocardiogram and the people reading them. Just because I do think this is such an important issue, I did want to open it up to Erica and Catherine about, you know, and Erica, I certainly know also you're seeing pediatric patients and, and have from a card's perspective, if there's any other insights about echoes that you think our listeners should take away. Yeah, no, I think uh, Cyrus described it very well. And I think I couldn't emphasize that point enough that, you know, the TR jet is just an estimate of the, the PA pressure. And if you want to look at the rest of the heart to kind of make a judgment about what's going on, and if you don't look at that right ventricle and how enlarged it is or how it's functioning in the setting of a borderline high pressure, you could be fooled in saying, oh, everything is, you know, just mildly elevated. But if, if that uh, if that right ventricle is hypocontractile and it's dilated, you know, it's quite, 
quite frankly, that patient cannot generate that higher PA pressure, then you could be in trouble. So um, I, I think that's a really important point. But I also will mention, as you bring up uh, the children, um, this can occur in adults as well, uh, congenital heart defects that have never been detected before. And time and time again, I've seen an adult present, let's say, with an ASD or partial veins, and, you know, they've got a big dilated right heart and modestly elevated pressure. And, you know, if you cannot see it on 2D imaging, you should always make sure you've adequately ruled out shunt physiology as part of this. And so um, one quick way to do that is a bubble study, which which I think we underutilize, a cavitation or bubble study where you inject agitated saline and look for any uh, presence of a shunt. And that could just be helpful in terms of, you know, kind of figuring out what the etiology of, of the pH is. I would just echo the points that Cyrus and Erica have made. I think that, you know, beyond the pressure estimates, RV function is incredibly important. Even if you're just a general practitioner, you know, let alone a pulmonary physician, I think if you're not familiar with the quantitative measures of RV function, even just getting a, a sense of qualitatively how the RV is working can be very important. I'm going to make one other, a couple other pearls here quickly. We didn't talk about pericardial effusion, um, you know, aside from being a, a patient with connective tissue disease where you can see them, uh, it's a pretty ominous sign of, of advanced disease. So when you see that uh, worry. Um, and then my other only other comment, as uh, Cyrus was talking about dissecting the difference between po pre and post capillary pulmonary hypertension, um, I often look at the atria and the interatrial septal orientation, and it might give me a clue if the atrial septum's bowing into the right side of the heart that the predominant problem could be a compliance issue on the left, and vice versa if it's bowing into the left side of the heart. Or again, you can have combined disease, but you know these other clues can really help you put the puzzle together. That's been fantastic. Thank you so much, Cyrus and Erica. And Catherine, I loved you echoing some of the importance of the echo. Um, so <laughs> will help us remember. Um, I want to come back to our patient, though, for a minute and just go over some um, significant um, past medical history. So Catherine, alluding to some of the questions that you mentioned earlier, uh, we do have some more information. Um, her significant history was uh, notable for a prior DVT while she was on oral contraceptives, as Ferv had mentioned earlier. She did end up taking warfarin for six months, and then she was told she could stop and had no further clotting issues. She has no personal or family history of pulmonary hypertension or autoimmune disease. She works as a hairdresser currently and says she has for many years. As far as social history goes, um, she has smoked for two years um, in her 20s, so about a half a pack per day. Um, but she did stop after she was diagnosed with a DVT since she was told it could be related. She does not drink or use any other substances. She did take diet pills for a few years before her gastric sleeve, but has not since. And other things, physical exam was notable um, only for tachypnea after exertion, but no other findings on lung or cardiac auscultation. Bringing up the skin and joint exam, I, I know Erica mentioned was important to look at, and those were unremarkable for her. Based on her echo findings, she did have um, end up having a right heart cath, and we did have the prior episode with um, Steve Matai and Allison Salas for mentioned where we talked all about this um, and a system for interpretation. But before we go into the numbers um, for our patient's case on the right heart cath, Catherine, I wanted to see if you can remind us um, what, what are the hemodynamic definitions of pulmonary hypertension? Oh, sure. So there are three main hemodynamic phenotypes. There's precapillary pH, isolated postcapillary pH, and combined pre- and postcapillary pH. So uh, the hemodynamic definitions for those are all uh, mean pH pressure greater than 20. And then for precapillary pH, the pulmonary artery wedge pressure is less than or equal to 15 millimeters of mercury and the PVR is greater than or equal to three Woods units. For isolated post-capillary pH, the wedge pressure is greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, and the PVR is less than three Woods units. And for the combined pre- and post-capillary pH phenotype, the wedge pressure is greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, and the PVR is greater than or equal to three Woods units. Great, and we'll definitely um, put something in our infographic with some of the information you said, um, just so that we can try to remember um, seeing the numbers um, in another format as well. And a, a follow-up to the, uh, your question or your comments, Catherine, I know these definitions were changed somewhat recently by the Six World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension. Can you remind us what major changes were made um, and the rationale for doing so? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So the definitions changed in 2018. So the major changes were first lowering the mean pH pressure threshold for defining pH to greater than 20 millimeters of mercury used to be greater than or equal to 25 millimeters of mercury. Um, and secondly, including PBR greater than or equal to three woods units in the, the definition of pre-capillary pH. Um, and this is just as Cyrus laid out because elevation of mean pH pressure is not sufficient to define pulmonary vascular disease as it can be due to an increase in cardiac output or, or high wedge pressure. Um, there were some other changes made at the Sixth World Symposium, but those were the, the big definitional changes that, that occurred there. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to review all of this. And, you know, I want to continue with our case and keep going over the basics of a pH diagnosis. But, you know, I can't help when there's three pH experts in a room to sort of ask some more advanced questions. And one, and Eric, I think you were part of the World Symposium. So <laughs> one question I have is, this was a, you know, a big paradigm shift. And I'm curious if you guys think there are other paradigm shifts that will eventually make their way in. You know, I've heard about discussions of the PVR threshold coming down or, or other hemodynamic definitions. Just curious if you guys think there's anything around the corner that might come in uh, later. And we won't hold you to it uh, for when the next definitions come out. Yeah, as long as you don't hold me to it. Uh, but to your point about the PVR coming down, you know, Bradley Marin and his group have published something recently uh, to that effect. And, and sure enough, I think uh, we, we may see that uh, with lower resistances, actually, that they're potentially long-term sequelae, which is what happened essentially with the, the mean PA pressure target moving downward. There were uh, studies that showed, particularly in patients with scleroderma, with uh, elevations, you know, of just above 20, that they had worse outcomes. Um, so I think the jury's still out and what this means. We previously, you know, were not necessarily capturing patients with pressures between 20 and 25 in our clinical trials and therapeutics. So I think now is gonna be an opportunity between now and the next symposium to get as much data as we can to support or negate or modify once again, uh, that this is the right threshold. So I think, again, you know, we'll hear more to come. And the, the other definition that seems to be a moving target, it's come in and out of favor at these meetings, has been an exercise-induced uh, pulmonary hypertension. And that uh, I won't make any statements with regard to that, except that it continues to be a moving target about uh, where, we def where and how we define that. Erica stole my, my points. I was going to make the same point about the PVR cutoff. I think, you know, Brad Marin's cutoff was 2.2. Uh, was you know, that paper showed that if you model PVR as a continuous variable, um, all-cause mortality increases uh, once PVR hits 2.2. So with that inflection point in mind, you know, is that a better PVR cutoff for defining the disease state? I don't know. Um, and then, you know, also curious to see if exercise pH makes it back as a definitional entity at some point. Um, it's something that we do a lot of work on at our center. And you know, to my eye, that data looks pretty good. You know, there's some evidence that show that um, multi-point slopes mean PA pressure over cardiac output and pulmonary uh, capillary wedge pressure over cardiac output slopes. Those can unmask a cult pulmonary vascular disease or left heart disease and predict outcomes. Um, but obviously, it's very cumbersome to perform those um, catheterizations and generate those slopes. And so, you know, what is the real clinical utility of that? I think all of that sort of remains to be to be seen. I will say that Cyrus just did a, a exercise right heart cath on one of my patients. And he I talked to the patient after just to, you know, check in and talked about the results. And he He's like, oh, it was such a cool experience. They got me up and I had it in my neck. And he was very, uh, yeah, he was taken with you, Cyrus, and with everybody. Yeah. And I, I, I thought it was cool too. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no substitute for patient enthusiasm for an exercise test. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, all right, so back to our case. In this case, the patient was uh, mild, had a right heart cath. She was mildly hypertensive during the cath. Blood pressure was 140s over 90s pretty much throughout, with O2 saturations of 97 to 98% on room air. Her RA pressure was 9. Her RV was 48, with an RV end diastolic pressure of 17. Her PA pressure was 48 over 27, with a mean of 34. Her pulmonary capillary wedge pressure mean was 11. She had cardiac output and cardiac index done by FIC first. They were 5.56 liters for cardiac output, and the index was 2.42. And the thermos was pretty similar. The cardiac output was 5.8. The index was 2.52. Her pulmonary artery sat was 62%. And overall, putting those together, her pulmonary vascular resistance was 3.97 woods units. 
She also had a fluid challenge of 500 cc's of fluid. Uh, and after that, her PA pressures were 48 over 22 with a mean of 31. Uh, so to remind me, actually, her mean went down after that. And her pulmonary capillary wedge was 11. No real change after the fluid challenge. And she additionally had testing with 100% oxygen and INO. And she had inhaled nitric oxide. And she had no significant hemodynamic changes with so based on those numbers, and we'll post those online so everyone can visualize them, but Cyrus, how would you classify this patient in terms of those hemodynamic categories we discussed? So, you know, in my clinic notes, what I try and do is, you know, sort of summarize it in a single albate, possibly run-on sentence. Um, but, you know, my summary would be that in this case, we have evidence of elevated right-sided filling pressures, mild to moderately increased pulmonary artery pressures, normal left-sided filling pressures, and a low normal cardiac index without evidence of vasoreactivity. Maybe one layer a little bit deeper there, you should make reference to the fact that the PVR is elevated and um, pathologically so. If I was going to delve a little bit deeper into the filling pressures, I would sort of note that there's a little bit of a discrepancy between that mean RA pressure and that RVEDP, which is a little bit more elevated than I would have expected to 17, if that means nine, but the, the critical parameter there is going to be that A wave of the RA pressure tracing. That's going to correlate probably more with that RVEDP than any other component of that right atrial pressure tracing. You know, in this case, you guys did a couple other additional things here. One is the fluid challenge. And there's pretty good consensus that if you administer 500 cc's of saline over five minutes, and if your wedge pressure does not exceed 18, that, you know, you don't have occult pulmonary venous hypertension or left side of heart disease. Um, normal subjects simply don't get wedge pressure increases uh, to or above that amount. And so you can feel pretty good about that. I think the vasoreactivity testing with 100% oxygen is a little bit more, you know, controversial, at least to me. There's probably a vasodilatory effect there. I don't think it's been compared directly to nitric oxide. The, the confounding effect is that it's going to sort of probably raise your PA saturation uh, independently of any impact it has on cardiac output. So it's always important to be mindful of what that PA saturation does after exposure to sort of super normal amounts of supplemental oxygen, particularly if, let's say, for example, your thermal dilution output doesn't change at all because of 100% O2. So something to be mindful of. But I, I think the you know, important thing for the individual practitioner is to try and summarize what you find on catheterization in a way that makes it very legible and actionable for the people around you. Thanks so much for going that um, going over that with us, Cyrus. Um, and it does sound like we have confirmation that our patient does have pulmonary hypertension. And we've talked about some of the hemodynamic categories as well as the definitions just a bit ago. But another thing I know we always end up talking about is what diagnostic group the patient falls into. And Erica, I was hoping that you can remind our listeners today um, about the major diagnostic groups within pulmonary hypertension. Absolutely. Again, this has undergone a bit of modification, but if we go with the Sixth World Symposium on pH, which was uh, held in 2018, uh, which we referred to before, uh, currently uh, there are still five main groups. And I think this is a really nice way to think about the patients as uh, you're evaluating a patient because it helps frame the possibilities. So group one being pulmonary arterial hypertension, there are a number of different etiologies, some very different, but these all have a common thread of pulmonary arterial hypertension or precapillary pulmonary arterial hypertension can be due to, again, a number of, of issues, whether they're inherited pH due to connective tissue disease, congenital heart disease, anorexigens, to other toxins, um, and so forth. Uh, but if you cannot find an etiology, we, we, we refer to that as idiopathic PAH. And um, group two is due to left-sided heart disease. And again, this is post-capillary in its pure form. It could be valvular. It could be due to reduced LV systolic function or um, you know, absence of reduced function, more of a diastolic problem. So anything post-capillary due to left, left heart. Group three is due to lung diseases, and that can come in many forms, as, as you all know. Group four, it used to be strictly CTAF or, you know, associated with clots. Now it's been expanded to include other pulmonary artery obstructions. So even anatomic obstructions uh, are now kind of uh, 
put in that category. And group five is basically, we don't know, uh, essentially a bunch of etiologies that we don't fit nicely into one of the other four groups. Uh, these can be hematologic disorders, glycogen storage disorders, complex congenital heart defects have moved into this group, um, sarcoidosis, and other systemic disorders that don't fit nicely. Um, interestingly, he, uh, sickle cell had moved from group one, it's moved back and forth. It's, it's back in hemolytic, hemolytic disorders in group five now. Thanks, Erica, and wanted to ask two follow-up questions for you. One, why does the diagnostic groupings matter so much for us as clinicians caring for patients with pulmonary hypertension? And then the second question is, once we have the hemodynamics, how do these groupings help us? Yeah, I mean, I think the groups, as I said, they're helpful to classify, but it's not the whole story. And so, like I said, group you can have a patient in group with group 1PAH, but they have very varied etiologies. But historically, the classification system uh, evolved by saying that histopathology in these patients looks the same if you were to do a biopsy, and typically response to treatment looks similar, and hemodynamics can look similar. And so specifically for group 1, these are the patients in whom clinical drug trials uh, for all of the drugs that we have available to date um, have been studied mostly in this group. Now we have exceptions, thankfully, in the last few years for uh, expanding this to other groups, but it's important in terms of understanding the physiology, you know, again, the histology and, and even treatment response. Uh, you certainly would not necessarily want to give a strong pulmonary vasodilator to someone in group two who had predominantly post-capillary disease as that could lead to pulmonary edema. And so even if the etiologies are different, again, classifying them will help you in terms of your treatment strategies and understanding of the underlying physiology. Thanks, Erica, for going over that. And um, I know, as you said, we talk about the groupings. And I think one one group that I've been particularly confused about um, in the past has been group five. And um, I know, as you said, group five is kind of for unknown or multifactorial mechanisms and can include things like sarcoidosis, systemic diseases, and hematologic diseases. And Cyrus, I was wondering why something like sarcoid would be group five as opposed to group one PAH. And I didn't know if you could explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is a bit of a tougher one, you know, to start with, you know, we generally have less histopathological data guiding us in pulmonary hypertension than in other disease states, um, because the risk of getting a biopsy sample in patients with PAH is sort of prohibitively high. Sarcoidosis ends up being a really good case study in sort of the multifactorial mechanisms um, of pH, um, which I can go into in a second. But uh, to Erica's point, um, you know, uh, she's right in that we think of group one pH as having sort of a, a you know, similar spectrum of histopathologic findings that um, really derive from, you know, seminal studies that were done in the 1950s you know, long before there are any therapies for pH. That classification schema, we still sort of uh, occasionally refer to today, although we don't use it clinically very often at all. In the case of sarcoid, uh, it is grouped in um, WHO group 5 pH because of the fact that it has multifactorial mechanisms. And, you know, Erica refers to one thing, you can have sort of extrinsic compression of your pulmonary arteries from hyalur or mediastinal adenopathy or even from sort of adjacent um, parenchymal destruction. Um, you can additionally have um, fibrotic destruction of the pulmonary capillary bed and the proximal arterioles, and that results in hypoxia. And there is a, an impact on your pulmonary vasculature from the hypoxia alone. And you can also have some direct vascular involvement in some cases. Um, but this ended up being a pretty challenging thing to be fairly confident about. Uh, I can think of an example of a paper that I read out of Japan that cited the presence of, quote, granulomatous angiitis on samples that were obtained from patients with sarcoidosis who had, you know, clinical pH based on cat data. And I reviewed this paper in person with, you know, my go-to pathologist here, and he was completely dismissive about the term. He didn't think it was appropriately applied to the lesions that were you know, demonstrated in the paper. And um, that's one of the big challenges I think we have in, first off, histopathology in pH writ large, 
but also uh, in the particular example of sarcoidosis. And so in some ways, sarcoid is the perfect example for a group five pH disease, which is sort of like this grab bag of um, diseases, but also of possible causes of um, secondary pH as a result of the disease. And, you know, I think it might highlight one of the other challenges that we have in pH or one of just maybe the realities is, is that we sort of meet pH at a certain clinical point um, or clinical phenotype, whereas let's say in oncology, you might meet a disease at a much more genetic level um, or genetic phenotype. And um, that's just the nature of the disease and how it's diagnosed. Um, and uh, we work within those confines. Yeah, that's great. And I, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know deep phenotyping of these pH patients to try to do that more like PV domic studies and, and sort of more broad studies that maybe one day will be more on that uh, more on that histopathologic uh, molecular level of things that, that we're getting towards. And I just can I make one very quick point. These aren't mutually exclusive and and that patients can be we're finding they can fit into two classes and so it's it's not always you know they can have some group one features and have sleep apnea and be a one three so just to throw that part out there yeah no that's really helpful now i don't feel as bad when my notes say group one two three four ph <laughs> being considered uh, so for our patient, so we know based on our cath now that she has a pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension. She had some history that, and, and some findings that we can consider. She had a, maybe a little restriction on her PFTs, but as Catherine mentioned, that, that could just been from her weight. She had some diet pills that she had been taking. Um, but Catherine, what additional workup would we do for a patient like this? Now we know she has pre-capillary and we need to figure out the etiology a little bit more specifically. Yeah, well, so most patients, you know, as she did, come with an echo and an EKG. So when I'm thinking about pH workup, I sort of take for granted that that's done for me. Um, and going in, you know, I usually have a sense of left heart systolic and diastolic function, in addition to right heart function, of course, and if any valvular disease is present. Um, and then, as, as Erica was mentioning earlier, if a patient's never had a bubble, we often we often get a limited echo for, for bubble just to look for, for any shunt that may be present if we have any concern for that. Then setting echo aside, because as I said, that, that tends to come with us. Um, I tend to think of other items in the workup according to grouping. So thinking through potential group one etiologies, you know, I would send an ANA to evaluate for occult connective tissue disease. And I might expand testing to include other serologies, depending on whether a patient has signs or symptoms of a specific autoimmune disease. Um, I have a fairly low threshold to send scleroderma specific antibodies, for example. We see a just send, tend to see a lot of scleroderma patients at Hopkins. Um, if patients haven't had HIV or hepatitis labs recently, I'll send those as well. Um, and if I have any concern for portal hypertension, based on the clinical context, I might get a liver duplex. Um, whether there's concern for drug, toxin-associated PAH or heritable PAH really comes from the history. Um, so, I, you know, I'd look to that. Um, then when thinking about patients who may have repaired or coincident congenital lesions, you know, as I said, most patients come with an echo. We often get a bubble, but we occasionally also order cardiac MRIs in our practice, often damage the RV, but also sometimes to look for cardiac defects and shunts, um, particularly if an echo is equivocal. Then thinking through group three etiologies, so patients usually come with chest imaging, but if not, I'll order a chest CT. Um, I think all patients need PFTs, including lung volumes and DLCO, to evaluate for parenchymal lung diseases, obstructive lung diseases. Um, patients routinely have pulse oximetry checked in the hospital or in our clinic, and between that and imaging and PFTs, you can get a sense for whether there's hypoxia or chronic lung disease present. Um, and then I'll order a sleep study or nocturnal oximetry, kind of only if I have a heightened suspicion for OSA or OHS. Um, all patients, I think, should have a VQ scan to evaluate for chronic thromboembolic disease, which is group 4 disease. Um, and depending on whether you suspect other pulmonary artery obstruction, as Erica mentioned, things like tumors or stenosis, you might consider a CTA with contrast. Um, and then as Cyrus mentioned, you know, group 5 is a little bit of a grab bag. Um, but I always make sure at a minimum that I have a CBC with diff and a metabolic panel on everyone. Um, CBC with diff can clue you into whether a hemolytic anemia might be present. We also see a fair number of sickle cell patients at our center, and whether a myeloproliferative disorder might be present. The metabolic panel will capture renal function because, of course, chronic renal failure is a cause of group 5 disease. Um, so that's sort of my off-the-cuff checklist for, for things that I, I get for these patients. 
Oh, that's great. And I like how you said, you know, which ones that you do on everybody and which ones you have some more suspicion for. Uh, you know, as a follow-up question, it's a lot of testing, right? But uh, yeah, obviously very appropriate for this type of patient. I'm curious in real practice, real life, when you do that testing, you know, is it only after you have a right heart cath that confirms that you're dealing with a pH patient? Or if you have a patient where you have a really high suspicion, you, you get things simultaneously? You know, I, I often have gotten questions and on the consult service or things like that. It's like, should we really send this whole workup? We don't even know exactly what they have yet. And I'm curious how you kind of approach that. Yeah, we, so we get that question all the time too. Um, so, you know, the, the timing is interesting. It's pretty common for us to get referrals to clinic on the basis of a right heart cath that's already been done, that already shows pH. And so we just go from there. Um, but when I'm doing the workup myself, you know, my practice is actually to complete a comprehensive workup before cath. And that's really for two reasons. Um, first, you know, the results can determine how I schedule and perform the cath. For example, you know, if after reviewing the results of all these various tests, IPAH or like for our patient today, drug toxin associated pH are highest on the differential, then I'll schedule the cath with a respiratory therapist, make sure inhaled and O is available for vasoreactivity testing provided there's a precapillary phenotype. Um, but I wouldn't perform vasoreactivity testing in a patient with lung disease that's been revealed by PFTs or imaging or a patient with a positive VQ. Um, but, you know, for patients going to cath with a positive VQ, we would do the cath and then at our center, we'd leave the sheath in place and they'd go to same day pulmonary angiography um, to help assess operability. Um, and then very occasionally, you know, depending on my pretest probability that pH might be related, at least in part, to HFPEF physiology, we might ask for some provocative maneuvers like Cyrus was discussing, you know, um, uh, fluid challenge. Um, so, you know, if the resting wedge is top normal in the 13 to 15 range, um, we'd give a 500cc fluid bolus and repeat the wedge. Um, so I think knowing what you might get into before you go to cath by reviewing all of your results is really helpful and helps you to plan the cath. My, my second reason for completing a full workup before cath is that it usually allows me to make a diagnosis and determine the appropriate therapy in most cases on the, days of, on the day of the cath. So if I have a clear differential going into the cath, once I get the hemodynamics, you know, if I have to give a patient a tough diagnosis, I can give that to them with a plan at the same time, which, which I think is just helpful. That's awesome. And I, I want to uh, curveball and ask one question to Cyrus and Erica while I have it, because this the issue about the vaso, the INO came up on our previous episode. And I'm just curious what everyone's thoughts are. So as you alluded to, there's only evidence for doing this for patients with IPH, heritable pH, or anorexia induced. That being said, the PV domics, the broad, you know, this big protocol that we do with all pH experts says to do it on everybody. And Cyrus, we were just talking about how there's groups that you've worked with who do it on everybody too, even on repeated cats. And I'm just curious if you guys can weigh in on the value of doing INO in these patients and, and how selective we should be on it. Okay, well, if I could just <laughs> chime in here as part of the PV domics uh, consortium, that you're right, as part of that protocol, we were doing uh, vasodilator testing on all groups, all comers, group one through five. Uh, but again, we don't know yet what it means as far as non-group one patients and predictability for you know, long-term uh, response to calcium channel blockers. So typically, a robust response is really predictive in you know, idiopathic disease of, of long-term response to calcium channel blockers. But outside, as you suggest, of IPAH, uh, we know very little about what it means. But um, I'm going to say that we should stay tuned for some of these data as they emerge because, uh, it, you know, just from my experience, vasoreactivity, it's a good thing. Uh, it, even if you have, uh, it doesn't mean you're going to respond to calcium channel blockers, nor should it send you down that pathway for non-idiopathic disease. But if you are able to relax those vessels, then those patients, again, can often be uh, more responsive, if you will, to, to pulmonary vasodilators. But don't quote me on that, except to say that it's, maybe it'll be worked in as, as a more favorable characteristic for non-IPH uh, patients in the future. Yeah, you know, I think I want to be really careful at how I phrase this, but, um, you know, uh, obviously the indication is for, like you mentioned, um, a, you know, pre-specified subgroup of patients with um, pure PAH. And the purpose is to identify um, prospective responders 
responders to calcium channel blockers knowing that they have a you know very different prognosis um, or they demonstrably vasoreactive. Having said that, um, I do think that vasoreactivity testing has the potential in the future to have a role that um, exceeds um, those confines and might end up being a parameter that we view as, let's just say, potentially even prognostic. Now, we're not even close to that point yet. It's going to require, I think, you know, a, a lot more extensive testing beyond what's recommended by guidelines. But uh, I think it's conceivable that in the future, we might view this reactivity testing as more than just a means of identifying um, calcium channel blocker responders. Um, but it's going to take a fair amount of uh, work and multiple centers to um, sort of expand their threshold for performing it um, to get to that point. And I, I have one other, um, I guess, observation is, you know, on occasion, we'll do vasoreactivity testing in a patient with a normal wedge pressure, right? And suddenly, you know, your wedge pressure goes up. What does that mean? I mean, it can go up with fluid, but, you know, is there a compliance issue uh, on the other side and the post-capillary bed? And so, again, to Cyrus's point, I think there may be other applications, but we just need to learn a little bit more about how to apply them. This is great. I, uh, I love this. I think once we start our Poem Peeps debate series, right after we talk about ECMO for ARDS and single versus double lung transplants and ILD, then we'll talk about ILD. Yeah. And I'll happily argue both pro and con. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody will. I know. We're going to have a, a, a pro-con debate on, this, on CVP, on um, INO. I feel like we need our own disclaimer for vasoreactivity um, and what, what our guests think about that. Um, but I did want to follow up on um, some of the additional testing that Catherine had recommended um, that she would suggest in the patient. So um, our patient did have uh, the entire workup, as, as was mentioned. Her VQ scan was negative. She did have a sleep study and had no evidence of OSA. Her serologic workup was unremarkable as well. And more history um, was ultimately found out about her diet pill use. And she had multiple years of using Fenfen um, and similar products. And it was felt that this could be the cause of her underlying pulmonary hypertension. And Erica, I wanted to um, ask kind of your thoughts and um, just your experience before, where it seems like in our patient, she had the diagnostic testing and, you know, history was obtained a little bit later to help support um, the reason for her having pulmonary hypertension. But when do you start to think about sending additional workups, such as genetic screening um, or other tests, um, when we don't have an obvious cause for our patient's pH? You know, again, I think uh, this patient uh, had a very extensive workup, but sort of to diagnose idiopathic disease, you want to make sure you've uncovered every stone. And so I think in general, if it there isn't a clear-cut cause and they're in a group one etiology, it seems uh, I offer genetic testing to the patients if they're so inclined. Some patients do not want that information, others do, but we know more about this than we, than we used to. I mean, there's over like 17 plus genes associated with pH now. And uh, particularly if there's any suspicion, not just of a family member that had pH, because how often do your patient know that, but maybe early sudden death, early unexplained death, anything that sounds suspicious in the family history, I would consider doing uh, genetic testing. Um, it doesn't necessarily change how we're going to manage the patient, so that's why it really it it really depends on what the patient's you know wishes are as far as uncovering that information. Um, but but this part of the field is evolving very rapidly, and uh, you know I think what's called idiopathic today uh, may not be in the future, frankly, because I think I'm hoping you know we'll be able to genotype most patients and not just for the sake of doing that, but to really understand the etiology of why they have it, different pathways, and, and hopefully lead to you know novel therapeutics so that we can personalize how we treat them. Again, we're grossly classifying them, but we know that there's probably major differences in how, how they came to the common place in the first place. So anyway, I'm a big fan of genetic testing, as you can tell, but uh, again, you have to work with the patient and, and what, their, what their preference is. 
can I just make a quick plug for um, genetic counselors and genetics clinics? So we have a pipeline set up that we can refer interested patients in, to a genetic counselor um, instead of ordering these sorts of things ourselves, just because they, you know, they really are great at, at talking patients through the pros and cons of moving forward with genetics testing and, and how to, you know, what they'll do with the results um, after, after it's done. So um, I think that, that that can be a useful, a useful pipeline for, for centers that have it. Thanks so much, Catherine, um, for, for adding that. I think it's going to be a very, um, very useful um, resource and tool. Um, I can't believe it's already been an hour um, since we've been discussing. Um, I think time time goes by fast when we're having fun, I know. And I know we all we all love PH, some more than others, maybe, um, <laughs> on, on the show right now. Um, I think Catherine keeps telling, telling me since I do CF that um, she wants to do a CF and PH project. So um, I'm happy happy to work um, with her on that um, and, and get, get some... Um, insight from from the episode today. Uh, but um, I think we've gone over some great um, tools and tips for looking at history on patients, um, getting uh, looking at physical exam, as well as um, what's important to look for on echo, uh, as well as some of the, the groupings. Um, we're definitely gonna have another follow up episode on pH regarding risk stratification and certainly about treatment. Um, but as we end our case today, um, one thing that Firk and I like to do is always wrap up with one take a point, takeaway point or pearl. And I think mine for today is Erica, when you mentioned early on about the physical exam, um, where you can actually get the, the pronounced P2 pretty on early in disease. And that's something that we can look for. Um, and we should be looking for on physical exam. So that's what I'm going to one of the things I'm going to take away today. Dave, what about you? Yeah, my, mine is going to be uh, Catherine's about the workup that she's doing and the, the questions she has going into right heart catheterization. Like, I think it's so helpful to have a pretest probability so that when you have these tests, you know exactly how to manage the patient afterwards. So, you know, having a, a good pretest diagnosis circulating in your head before you get the values, I think is going to be the takeaway I'm going to go with. Great. Catherine, what about you? Um, so I have, uh, I guess, a little bit more of a pearl. Um, uh, maybe to springboard a little bit off of something Erica said about the importance of um, skin exam, you know, in pH clinic, I've, I've really been on the lookout for vascular skin lesions like telangiectasias. Um, there are really just not that many things that cause prominent telangiectasias. So seeing these can tip you off to the presence of scleroderma, which, as I said, we see a lot of. And in scleroderma, higher numbers of telangiectasias are actually associated with a higher PAH risk. Um, they can also tip you off to HHT, which we actually also see a fair bit of because we just have a center of excellence here at Hopkins, but HHT can be associated with different forms of pH, including PAH. Um, and then spider angiomas, you know, which are a little different, obviously, but those can tip you off to advanced liver disease, which is also relevant to a PHE valve. So look at the skin. Great. Cyrus, what about you? One takeaway point? Yeah, yeah I think it's just maximizing everything that you get from, you know, these principal tests, specifically the echocardiogram and that catheterization. So that, you know, when you're going to the cath, um, based on the echo findings that you, um, like Dave said, have a pretest probability for, um, you know, it, is there a higher likelihood for occult pulmonary venous hypertension here that I need to be sort of mindful and prepared to look into? And then also um, just, you know, making sure you've got a good quality and comprehensive right heart catheterization so that you can appropriately categorize a patient in front of you. Um, and since that's, you know, the principal starting point for prescribing medicines, um, making sure that you're doing that um, uh, in a sober way as possible. Fantastic. And Erica, we will end with you um, and your final takeaway point or pearl. Well, I just, first of all, want to say thank you. This has been such a wonderful conversation, but I'm going to, you know, again, focus on the diagnostic workup. And one of the things that is so important to me, it, once a patient comes to me, I feel responsible to rule out anything that's reversible. So uh, the VQ scan we you know, mentioned earlier, if this is CTEF and there is a potential cure or treatment that's you know, advanced, you don't wanna miss it. And the same with sleep apnea, for example, may not be the full cause of pH, but you know, if you've got something that you can treat uh, differently, uh, you, it's sort of your obligation to identify it. So I go with the full workup in, you know, basically to, to, uh, Catherine's point in everybody, unless there's some other compelling reason not to. So, so don't forget, uh, that people can have more than one etiology and, and to do that. Completely. 
Amazing. Well, this has been a great session. Thank all three of you so much for coming on. Uh, we hope all you enjoyed it at home and tune back in in two weeks for our next episode. Uh, this episode was uh, written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music is original music by Eric Rogers. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.